All right, uh, welcome to a new episode of Speed Change Repeat. Um, today we have a really interesting uh, guest, Marcel Yon. Uh, hi, Marcel. Hi. Uh, well, thanks for being on the show. And uh, we usually always start our show the same way. So uh, we first uh, give the stage to our guests to kind of give um, yeah, an insight into their basically professional life, uh, kind of like go through your uh, different stages in a storytelling way and because that's quite interesting to our uh, listeners of course so off you go that, that quite seems um, like the boring part but <laughs> so, so <laughs> let's try to make that short so um, so what have I done before really um, I had uh, probably four professional lives in my first professional life um, I was an investment banker worked in M&A um, and advised uh, large corporations and governments on M&A transactions, corporate finance, and privatizations, uh, particularly in the telecom, energy, and defense sector. Um, then I took over mm -hmm. the management of a research center in artificial intelligence. So we were basically focused on AI and computer vision. Uh, we did R&D, applied research, as you would say today, um, and, and kind of were pioneers in, in computer vision. Um, and, and then I became an entrepreneur myself. I founded um, and built three, three uh, high-tech companies, um, two of them in AI computer vision, serving the defense and national security markets, the healthcare market and automotive market. And for the last four years, I was in the German Ministry of Defense and and try to help a little bit on digital innovation and digital transformation. Yeah, so um, those are really, really interesting, um, uh, I mean, different stations. And uh, maybe a first question, um, as you just said, you, you started off in, in basically in M&A, so basically more in the finance uh, part. And then you're, uh, you kind of switch into, uh, into, let's say, leading this. Th uh, those were the days when investment bankers were the good guys. Yeah, <laughs> when it was still <laughs> cool. <laughs> no, but, but then you switch basically to lead a, uh, an R&D uh, in, in, let's say, in, in artificial intelligence. How did you make that switch? Because that's really like, it's kind of really different, right? You know, I, um, I was fortunate to work for uh, a very entrepreneurial investment bank mm -hmm. and, um, and where uh, entrepreneurial initiative was always encouraged by the partners and where they were very entrepreneurial. And um, so this was, it was absolute great learning curve and I really enjoyed being there. And at the same time, um, I, um, I kind of, um, it whetted my appetite uh, for entrepreneurial activity and I wanted to be more involved in the, in the various projects. What, what I found quite sad was um, as an advisor, you, you kind of enter an interesting space and you find it s super interesting. But then after a couple of months, it's over and you have to move on to the next thing. And I, I, I always felt like uh, when, whenever it was time to move to the next project, I felt I, I just barely got to know that area and I wanted to dive deeper. And, um, and so I think that was a motivator. And at the same time, you know, there was l l um, uh, late 90s um, and um, uh, it was the, the first big internet bubble and... Um, and you, you saw companies like Amazon going public and, and lots of things happening in the startup ecosystem. And that kind of fascinated me. And uh, so I wanted to get involved in, in technology. I thought at the time that um, uh, uh, particularly Germany was really advanced in, in high tech. And I was looking for... I, w I was curious in artificial intelligence. I was, y you know, so that kind of motivated me. And, um, and this research center really, the mission of that research center was applied research. So it was about taking inventions and, and building products and companies out of that and, um, uh, or, or applications at least. So, so it had a bit of an entrepreneurial thing to it. And, and so that, I don't know, it was, a, it, it was probably, looking at it, it was, it was probably a crazy career move, but uh, uh, I found it was uh, interesting enough to, uh, to dare, and uh, yeah, so. 
Yeah, so I mean, uh, let's dive deeper into your uh, first ventures then, because uh, I mean, your last stage was uh, with the German uh, Ministry of Defense, and you said, let's say, the the startups that uh, or the companies that you found were also active within, let's say, uh, yeah, the defense space. So let's just like kind of give us, um, yeah, a little insight into the 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 companies that or the first company maybe, and in general, like a uh, and. Short so summary. So my yeah, my, my first company, we really, we started off with um, facial recognition biometrics. That's how we got into digital identity and identity security and all this. And um, and that, of course, was a, we, we decided to focus on governmental markets. At the time, biometrics, a lot of people focused on convenience, biometric, uh, like you would have today in your iPhone, you use facial recognition to to open up your iPhone. So th that was considered the main market at the time. We decided, however, that w we didn't believe that market was, was ready. We decided to go for governmental markets like border security and, and criminal ID and, and digital ID and all these things. And um, and so that, that proved like a, uh, to be a, uh, a lucky decision. And, um, and so uh, we were one of the first companies really to incorporate biometrics in national identity cards and all these things. So, um, and of, of course, other than uh, criminal ID and border security and uh, national security markets, uh, uh, it was also uh, a military market. Yeah, that's interesting. But like, I mean, uh, you know, uh, when we talk about startups, and uh, especially nowadays, I mean, uh, uh, due to the advancements in technology, there's a lot of companies that are, let's say, well, uh, a lot of maybe claiming that they are doing something with an AI, but let's say working with uh, with machine uh, machine learning. So, but uh, I mean, those are mostly, let's say, either software businesses, and and I mean, for most people, this is quite an un unusual, let's say, setting. So, how how was it that like? How do you maybe just give an insight? How do you start off in, or how do you come up with the idea that maybe government or let's say uh, you know would be would be a good customer, and how do you approach that? You know, how do you make that even happen? <laughs> Well, I, I never thought that was that surprising that the government is a is an enormous customer. But what what most people don't know, what most startups underestimate, is the size of the B two G market. And um, I mean, uh, let's let's take an example of the German armed forces. I mean, um, I think the uh, total logistics volume is something like four times Volkswagen Group. Um, it's the largest provider of education in Germany. It is one of the largest healthcare groups in Germany, yeah, with I think twelve or thirteen thousand members of staff in healthcare um, in the medical corps. So, so um, the armed forces are not only about weapons and fighting; they are enormous ecosystems and because they have a very complex mission um, it, it is always at the at the uh, uh, forefront frontier of technological advancement so they are actually the, the the defense market is a very interesting high-tech market yeah that's uh, I mean those numbers are incredible right and uh, that is just one single country so <laughs> I mean uh, especially I mean for your company probably uh, you 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 were not just selling or let's say not only working with the German uh, government probably there's I mean other governments right well so in, in in fact we were uh, so my companies were founded in Germany but they developed internationally and and actually um, one of the issues is that the German b2g markets are very very slow ah. and um, and so it wasn't it wasn't a it, it, it wasn't really by by choice or strategy that we decided to become international, but it just happened because the yeah. the customers, uh, the international customers, right. other governments were faster in decision uh, making and in adopting innovation. Um, yeah, so that's really interesting. Um, so. I mean that was that was that part, and uh, but you also said you you did something within medical. Uh, what exactly? Yeah, so my second startup, uh, we we did uh, we used computer vision uh, as a technology um, to uh, to uh, as a, a predictor for uh, cancer, mm -hmm. and so it was one of the first startups to do AI-based cancer diagnostics, and uh, incidentally. Um, 
Uh, also, the armed forces uh, were one of the first customers there. Um, you know, coming back to the point, many people underestimate the the need for technology in in medicine. And actually, they were using it for a different purpose. They were kind of misusing our technology as a telemedicine tool. Uh, and when you think about it, um, with international deployments. And um, you cannot always afford to have specialized doctors in every single point of deployment. So, so uh, you need telemedicine in order to uh, provide the best possible healthcare for your soldiers. And uh, so, you know, the military was a nat natural-born adopter of telemedicine. Right. That's interesting. So, um, but I mean, people are mostly, I think, curious uh, for for how or let's say what you actually did within the um, within the uh, Ministry of Defense for Germany. But let's say before we go there, I mean, uh, would be interesting. So you said like you, you founded three companies, right? So I mean, your second one was within the medical space uh, with this, uh, let's say, uh, recognition of cancer. Um, what was the third one? The, the third one was about uh, plastics recycling. So okay. another topic <laughs> that's uh, quite in vogue these days. Yeah. So it was about uh, nanotechnology, um, Recycling of polymers, okay. uh, so rubber and plastics, right, right, right. Um, and to um, when when we talk about recycling of polymers today, it's very often it's like burning. Uh -huh. So we developed the technology to make intelligent use of these polymers to reintegrate them into the production cycle. Okay. Yeah. Well, let, let's maybe uh, you know that's interesting. Na nanotechnology. I mean, that's uh, something that is not really that uh, let's say a technology of, of mass discussion. <laughs> I mean, uh, nanotechnology in that sense, uh, as as far as my uh, amateur understanding of it is, uh, let's say we are where uh, you basically work on the atom basis, right? Or how f how, how no small no no is no, it? no 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 no. It's uh, like fifty nanometer. And maybe small. Okay, so and basically, uh, so if if you're saying it's uh, it's about um, let's say uh, working with plastic, I mean you have those small so pl plastic being like in these small, really small um, particles, basically, and then breaking it down. Or what? It's, what was it's it very yeah, it's very small particles. I, I mean, it's so these particles are so small that um, if you if you took a, a bag full mm -hmm. and um, would throw them into your um, high school, mm -hmm. you would have to close down the school for a couple of months because it would take months for these particles to settle down. Really? And, and we're not giving advice to any students here, right? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, well, I mean, uh, as of right now, it doesn't seem that th this is necessary, right? <laughs> so, so and, and by the way, um, dealing with small particles like this uh, can be a highly explosive thing. Okay. Because you, you have uh, a, a good combination of uh, air and, mm -hmm. and uh, combustible um, uh, particles. Mm -hmm. And that can be, uh, if you have an ignition point and the right combination of oxygen and, and combustion material, then uh, it can be highly explosive. So it's a it's very tough material to okay. handle. Yeah. Um, but it was my uh, one and only sort of non-digital episode in my in my life. Really? How, l how long <laughs> was that? Oh God, you're asking me questions. <laughs> I, think, I think that was uh, six years. Okay, moment. six years. So then let's make this transition because I mean, that is something, because it's interesting, you say that was my n first uh, or only non-digital uh, experience. But then I mean, your, uh, your ne let's say next role after that, or let's say the, the transition there was then basically to, uh, to and go. And, and by the way, it was, non-software, non-digital, but uh, a very interesting um, lesson nonetheless. Okay. Um, we, we've, we had to build a chemical factory and in, in, an, in a very complex environment because the technology wasn't really, it wasn't 100% clear how it would play out uh -huh. and, and there was a lot of uncertainty in it. And basically we applied agile principles okay. to develop that yeah. technology and to build the factory. And um, and agile principles work very well also with traditional factory building. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was one of the key takeaways. That that is really interesting um, because we've talked before before we started the episode. We kind of uh, were talking about that. But uh, so uh, tell me how how what was then like basically okay. So uh, I assume you sold the company 
after after uh, after doing it or mm. maybe it went down or you sold it yeah you sold it so what was then the transition i mean because the the, the next step then was the german uh, defense ministry or not yes indeed okay so how 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 did that actually come about because your role as 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 far as you told me was basically to um the role of a trans transfer uh, transformation officer yes well so think of the the german ministry of defense or the german armed forces mm -hmm. Um, is is one of the few ministries that have um, an own operational activity. Now, some some ministries, like the um, Ministry of Economics Affairs, are more a policy-giving mm -hmm. institution. The German military, like for example, also the police or the um, other ministries, have a, their own operation. So it's a big it's a big company. And mm -hmm. it, just to give a perspective, if if you would compare it to uh, corporations, it would be the fifth largest company in Germany. Okay. So, so by by you know by budget, by number right. of people, by by similar criteria. Yeah. So so um, so so of course, and and as I pointed out earlier, this is not only about tanks and and planes and things like that it's it's also about the day-to-day -day operations in germany about healthcare, about buildings about education about bureaucracy about you know how do we collaborate together so th the german military has the same needs for digitalization and transformation as any other large corporation would except that it's so much more complicated because it needs because of the operating environments in which uh, the military is so it's highly international you have to you always collaborate with other armed forces so there's an um, um, integration and collaboration question here it it, it happens in the rem most remote places on the planet with different temperatures and operating conditions it could be at sea with seawater problems it could be in 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 freezingly cold areas it could be in the desert with dust and everything so the operating conditions are, are much tougher than for most other products and and deployments are very fast uh, things change very quickly the everything needs to be robust and you have adversaries that uh, that that are you know, it's not just competition it's adversaries that uh, that uh, really want to beat you and, and ultimately kill you. And uh, so your material needs to be much more robust against cyber attacks or anything, any other threat. Right. So, so, um, so having said all this, it's, so it's at the, the, the uh, foremost frontier of technology, but with the hardest operating conditions. So in that right. setting, it is still a, a government institution uh, that has all the constraints government have with procurement law, with public spending laws, with political governance and everything, that um, that which which are all things, all laws that are very important, but which uh, makes it even more complicated to operate in. So with all this, with all this complexity and the need for innovation, um, the institution armed forces uh, need, of course, to adapt to the same uh, challenges that everybody else needs to adapt to the speed of innovation, the um, the innovation that all of a sudden comes out of the startup ecosystem when uh, 20, 50, 100 years ago, probably the military had kind of the monopoly over disruptive innovation now disruptive innovation like ai etc is coming from startups so mm -hmm. what does it mean to the military we all right. of a sudden we need to interact with startups yeah so so this this was the kind of setting and we we defined um um, so, so um, the, the minister of the time, Ursula von der Leyen, very, um, very wisely uh, also defined the setting that it's not about only about uh, digitalization, i.e. the technology part of it, but also about the, the digital transformation or cultural transformation, that the way people interact and collaborate in a large bureaucracy like this needs to change. Mm -hmm. And and we decided that the best way to bring new impetus in this um, subject matter was to create a separate unit, mm -hmm. a, a digital innovation unit or corporate venturing unit, as you would call it, to, to have a, a protected ecosystem and, and space where you would be able to not only try new technology but also try new ways of collaborating 
Um, and so we created um, uh, a digital innovation unit for the German Armed Forces. It was also the first digital innovation unit the German, the German government did. So mm -hmm. it was quite an experiment. Right. Um, and um, so, so I was responsible for, for creating the concept and also for building it and for managing it for the first three years. Right. You know, that's, I mean, uh, that all sounds really, really great. But I mean, uh, I think the first question, uh, you know, uh, maybe our listeners ask themselves is really, I mean, okay, so you did that, you did that recycling startup, right? And then you, you had a really, let's say, uh, deep tech uh, experience, large deep tech experience. But then how, how, how did you make that, I mean, how did you make, or how did that move actually come about? I mean, were you approached or uh, how, how, how did you actually end up there? Because... Uh, as, I, as as you told me, actually you have a uh, you have a, a background uh, in the military, right? Well, the the uh, I, w I was a reserve officer before, mm -hmm. so there was some connection there. Um, really, this this was uh, this was independent on that. It's okay. um, it's um, uh, I don't really remember how it came about, but uh, I came in touch with. Uh, decision makers in the German um, Ministry of Defense mm -hmm. and we talked about with an exchange of thoughts about how can we bring a culture of innovation mm -hmm. and how can we promote um, innovation in a large organization and um, so basically I shared my entrepreneurial perspective about about that and and I, I would say uh, my my key message at the time was that I believe that um, it's 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 not only about technology, but it's equally about um, about culture and talent. Mm -hmm. So that's that's how the the entire discussion started, and mm -hmm. how and, and then uh, you know it's it's a, a, an idea is never born in one day. So right. over a series of discussions, this evolved then into mm -hmm. the the strategy of the digital innovation. Unit. Right. Yeah. Uh, so maybe uh, let's dive in, uh, a little bit deeper into into those uh, into that time that you had there. So maybe tell us about you know some of the things that you have done there. Uh, you know, you obviously let's say laid out the roadmap, but maybe just tell us about the, let's say a few highlights that you that you uh, that you had there. Yes. Maybe maybe it's uh, we should we should quickly inform our listeners about what was the mission of that digital right. innovation. So really, Definitely. it was it was um, threefold. It was. Um, to to build a unit that makes collaboration and purchasing from startups, international startups, so so globally, um, efficient, mm -hmm. and the objective there was to create a, a process and uh, an operation uh, operational mode to um, from from the point an idea or a need is born to delivery into the hands of the soldiers in in 90 days which is quite revolutionary when you think about the very very long procurement processes in 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 the public sector and right. the military in particular um and you know governments are not good in working with startups because they make things very very complicated and um, startups happen not to have the time for that complexity and and very often it's not even needed so we, we that was mission number one. Second, second mission was to uh, as we coined it um, develop a lean startup as a military capability so while the military is highly innovative and develops and, and is using a lot of high tech, um, it doesn't necessarily have the culture of uh, building products and the entrepreneurial culture of developing new capabilities. So it was about bringing that typical startup mindset into, uh, I into the, let's call it, process of developing product. And, and um, the third one was to uh, foster a culture of innovation and uh, entrepreneurial culture by attracting entrepreneurial talent from the outside to work for the military, but also by um, developing and promoting bottom-up innovation. Through an, so we created an accelerator program targeted at soldiers and civil servants uh, to help them promote their own innovative ideas within the system. Right. I mean, um, so basically, 
I mean, that's ex exactly the, uh, my my assumption, or let's say the assumption uh, most people will have is right that that uh, the military is operating with really, let's say, also high tech, uh, right? There, um, I mean, basically they work with really deep tech as well. So, but uh, more more or less, it was the same as with like any, let's say, stock listed company that you have or big organization like Volkswagen, just in general to create to basically you know, speeding up the, the process of internal, basically, development of technology or products and services, yeah. right? Yes, and we have to be very careful because um, very often the military is subject to newspaper articles and we have to be very careful with our perception. Not everything in this perception is is correct and a true reflection and mm -hmm. true and fair reflection of reality. And, and the fact is the military is a very successful innovator and has been very successful in the past. So the, the question is not to, to um, discredit the things of the past. The question is, um, is the way the military operates the, the way that's going to make, uh, that's going to lead to success in future. And, and we need to acknowledge that things are changing and the way innovations are being born and the way things are being moved forward. Not only the speed, but also the entire way. I mean, let's just take software. We, we come from 20 years ago, uh, the speed of two releases per year to continuous daily delivery today. That is an enormous change in all the processes behind it and the way we operate and the way we we uh, contract and and it's not easy to bring that in line with procurement law which is pre pretty much in a in a stage gate kind of mentality so so um, it, it's therefore it's a, a very disrupting thing but also the technologies are disrupting let's take toy drones a $500 toy drone is disrupting the military because all of a sudden it can pose a threat to all our conventional security measures. Like the conventional security is a wall. Well, it can go over the wall easily. And um, it can, uh, a 500 euro or dollar to uh, toy can be a threat to a multi-million aircraft or tank or other vehicle and and not even to mention cyber threats etc so so there are disruptive things taking place both culturally and technologically um, and um, the question is are we prepared for them and how can we prepare for them right I mean uh, that that is a really really uh, good point that you mentioned you know actually to be honest uh, to make the shift right now what you just said is uh, it's, it's really uh, it's really good because like you said it's it's not about not acknowledging all the good things that happened in the past you know or the good things that are being done you know as a f status quo but to really think okay how can we also be successful in the future and i see to be honest uh, and that's actually a good point that you made in terms of like um the how media oftentimes uh, you know uh, yeah kind of uh, displays or kind of like yeah showcases um really kind of like tries to to spread negative energy you know because I, I to be honest I can see the same thing also in the public sector uh, uh, because I mean also with companies right it's really nobody talks about the past I mean yeah one could say that it's not really necessary to talk about the past but I mean yeah it's oftentimes it's you know for example take a take a pharmaceutical uh, company right uh, take a pharmaceutical company it's a it's a it's a scientific company, right? It has really, really strong scientific knowledge. It has scientists, right? The most people that work there are scientists. So right then, it's really about like, okay, how can we change the ways we work? How, how can we change the ways we think about work? Maybe also the processes that we have in, in, uh, in order to, let's say, adopt to these, you know, to this new speed of technological developments, you know, to actually, you know, transform ourselves that we are also able to do, uh, you know, as many, as many uh, rollouts as, for example, or updates as, 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 for example, Amazon or Facebook is doing, right? And, uh, and of course, it's a very challenging topic because both extremes would be wrong, right? I mean, um, it, it would be wrong to ignore the lessons learned from the past. Right. Um, at the same time, it would be wrong to assume that no new lessons learned can be learned. And the, the, the world is changing, so we need to keep ourselves open, open-minded to new developments. And um, so it's about finding that balance. And I think that's, that's what large organizations really struggle with, is um, you know, they have created, for good reason, they have created processes to harvest 
the successful lessons learned from the past and to bring in some standardization and scalability built on the successes of the past. And that's good because you know this scaling allowed us to reduce unit costs and uh, many other benefits. And at the same time, you know, while you standardize, um, if, if that results in in closing your eyes to new developments, then that becomes an extreme. And, and that's where we are at at the moment. So we've become very, very good in harvesting the successes of the past, but we have forgotten a little bit to bring in new entrepreneurial I impetus. So, so we need, I think we need to move these big organizations, both public and private alike. I don't think there's much difference there. Right, right, right. Um, to, to a place where we're a little bit more entrepreneurial. Now, while doing this, we have to be extremely careful because um, the, um, there's a very fine line between being an innovator and being plain crazy. And, and um, the, the, um, so this, can, this cannot lead to forgetting everything from the past and you know, throwing everything overboard and changing everything. So we need to find that balance. But right now, I think the needle needs to move a little bit more towards the entrepreneurial impetus. Right. So before we actually, uh, before we switch uh, kind of the, the chapter, let's uh, maybe a little bit uh, dive uh, deeper into, let's say, your time still at, uh, you know, at, the, at the ministry. So um, you saw a lot of, um, a lot of startups, I assume, in, the, in that time, during that time, mm -hmm. and also, let's say, also a lot of innovation happening within this, you know, whole space of defense, um, and maybe also, you know, general cyber, uh, cyberspace. Uh, maybe tell us some of the cool things that you saw there. You know, some some of the really, let's say, if you, if you could, like, right now, you know, just what if you if you remember from that time, you know, what were some of the developments that you saw, some of the technology, some of the or let's say use of technology also maybe companies you know that are really really exciting and that are worth sharing well I, you know to to put this a little bit on a on a higher perspective i right. i i think there are particularly two things that got me excited the first one has to do with my past in computer vision and i'm i'm just excited by the advancements in computer vision over the last 20 years i mean it's it's i mean ev of course any technology any point of time everybody will always say we're about to hit a breakthrough so 20 years ago we were saying next year is going to be the breakthrough and so we are today the truth is it's a never ending story we'll always develop but seriously i mean the the capabilities of computer vision today are phenomenal and the speed at which they are even growing is even more impressive so and and we see a lot coming from very small companies and um and i personally i believe that uh, the startup ecosystem is the key driver in computer vision not the large corporations uh, you know even though particularly the defense sector has been a very important player in this for the last 20 years. Um, just take alone, uh, take alone uh, the Israeli startup Mobileye and, and others, uh, but even smaller ones uh, are making phenomenal progress. So that, that got me really excited. Uh, and everything we can, you know, there's so many applications that derive from there. Um, the second thing that got me excited is actually the, the cost of developing software-based product has gone down so much that so much is possible. So just take all the applications you see in the market to um, facilitate our workflows and facilitate the collaboration between people. A and I think what we are about to see in the next 10 years is a revolution of, the of administrative work. Um, and I mean, it, what what was the factory line 20 years ago in the automotive space, I think is going to happen to bureaucracies over the next 10 years um, with all the good and bad, with the bad that lots of jobs will be lost, uh, with the good that, you know, we'll save money and we'll uh, be able to redeploy people to more value-added tasks um, and making actually, actually our lives easier. But it's it's so cheap nowadays to to automate workflows that's um, really exciting it's actually le le let's um, let's stay with that point you know uh, it's, r it's really interesting um, uh, I, I see that uh, the, the same and uh, 
you know that's uh, right now the especially last year uh, last year was uh, really the the the, the hotspot for that is the with the whole you know uh, robot process automation where we where we actually try to do these you know tedious tasks and take them and automate them because you know uh, uh, and with software and there's uh, a couple of providers that are really big with that but um and there's actually a book uh i don't know if you uh, if you know the guy uh, it's called he is called uh, kai fu lee and he wrote a book that is <laughs> that is called ai superpowers is really a uh, really american uh, title <laughs> but it's basically um th that's actually where he goes into saying like okay so as of right now um people that are uh, that are let's say endangered in terms of losing their jobs is actually you know the the white color you know the the white color so the ones that are sitting in front of computers and doing these tedious tasks and maybe like you know filling <laughs> things into excel or you know like uh, actually t from a normal piece of paper filling stuff into excel uh, and not the let's say blue color and uh, i i want to get your opinion on that because um uh, for example in order for um I, I see the same thing it w uh, right now. The next years, it will really like uh, massive, uh, massively be adopted. But how do you see, let's say, this space of robotics? Because that would actually be also a part, right? Where you combine, okay, we have, we can create intelligent um, software. We are really good at that, and it, the speed of uh, increases very, very much. Um, but uh, creating the uh, or trying to copy the. Um, Let's say the, the the physical the physical movement of a human body is is a different task. That's more challenging. Exactly. But so so my assumption is we'll we'll see autonomous vehicles right before we see robotics because wheels and propellers are known physics. So I mean and and maybe you know I'm I'm looking at it pretty much from a from a defense mm -hmm. per and security yeah. perspective. You know, let's let's take drones. I mean, this is a revolution coming with drones. Um, in in every in, in logistics, in reconnaissance, in also threats, and um, it's it's really going to change our lives. And because um, it makes micro mobility so much easier, and um, and that in combination with computer vision, um, it's phenomenal. So you you will see an exponential. Um, expansion of cameras, of I images, um, and of the technology to process it. So this is really going to change things, and that and that's th there's no need to invent new things for that. that that's happening already, right? Um, but you know, at, at the end of the day, I mean, you're right. Also, robotics. We see. Uh, so one of the interesting startups I saw was a. Um, it was kind of a. Um, semi-robotic application. It was like a, like a, a kind of metal thing you would dr attach to your arms and legs and that would support the human muscles. So you could run longer, faster, with more load, etc. So, you know, we'll, we'll see kind of, I it's not just, it's not the, uh, the, the perfect robot uh, or nothing. The, the we'll yeah. see many things in between that, that will make our daily lives um, easier. And, but, you know, to tell you, one of, one of the things I loved about my job over the four years was uh, it was a, a phenomenal toy shop for me. I mean, there's so many fascinating technologies. Uh, I, I, ca I mean, right now with all the corona thing going on, I'm excited at the thought that in not too long from now, we will be able to develop an antidote to a new virus like this within 24 hours. Mm. Uh, just because we have the means to process our learnings and everything through AI and, and so forth. Uh, and and to just be faster to react to things. I mean, and and there are things in water treatment, in energy sufficiency, in so many areas that um, uh, that are happening right now. It's it's just exciting. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, last la last point on the on the on, on the on the military space. Um, dog barking right now. Uh, Let's. You said drones, right? Um, and I remember in 2017, uh, or was it? Yeah, 2017. I was talking with uh, an executive from um, 
for Domino's Pizza. Yep. And uh, I remember because Domino's Pizza actually, most people don't know, they're really really innovative, and they're like their their stock actually went up super super high because they're they are let's say also being seen more or less as a technology company because they're testing so much with like you know enhancing the business model through uh, through technology, and they were they were testing uh, drone delivery in um, in New Zealand already back in the day. So if you say the adoption of drones, for example, right? And you probably, uh, I assume you, you've worked a lot with drones uh, in, in during your time there. I see it, and also because you worked in the ministry, the biggest problem is always whether whether you take the, let's say you take the road, right? But the biggest challenge for autonomous uh, driving will not be the technology, right? Um, it will be the, the reg regular regulation, right? And the, and the, um, the um, having autonomous driving cars together with, let's say, pedestrians, bicycles, whatever, and but in the aerial, um, in in the air, it's a completely different story. But still, there I see, let's say, let's uh, take into consideration that drones will be delivering packages, right? For example, now in for in, in Germany, the biggest e-commerce uh, e is growing, growing, growing. I mean. How how do you see that in terms of also from a regulation perspective? Are we going to see that soon, or is the adoption going to come sooner? Are we actually going to like have more and more, let's say, drones in our lives or not? Well, I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I cannot predict that. All I know from experience is that um, our political and administrative governance is very slow. And we are, I, I think we have a severe problem in our societies here mm. um, because at every level, it's not just the minister, it's every, every level um, is, is an overweight of uh, bureaucracy, mm. a lack of boldness um, and uh, courage and entrepreneurial initiative to, 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 embark a new on new paths and 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 that's sad to see because I, I think we we're losing quite a few opportunities and um, so I, and I, I'm not saying that this crazy wheel needs to spin faster and faster and faster we also have to have a serious debate about limits of growth and etc but I'm, I'm I'm just saying that um, I witnessed so many topics both in the public sector and in pri large private corporations where, where where it was just evident that a certain way of operating didn't make sense and it took so much effort to change it and very often it was not even possible to change it or not completely and and that I find crazy I mm. mean you know ask ask employees of large corporations or of the public sector they will be able to name you so many inefficiencies and, and it's strikingly, you know, logical and evident and it seems we can't do anything about it. And that I find so frustrating. So we don't, uh, I mean, we're, we're talking here about the most innovative, you know, robotics and complicated things, etc. It seems that in large organizations, we're not even able to do the homework, the, the easy stuff. So, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I kind of like, um, you know, the, <laughs> the quick wins and the low-hanging fruits. And I would, um, you know, if I were an executive of a large organization, I would really focus on that. I mean, so much wisdom is in these large organizations. Right. And yet, they don't manage to harvest it. That, that's, to me, this is the... the biggest waste of resources we have in, in our times it's a per perfect point actually to make that transition now so let's say from your and if i may add yeah the military is a perfect example of that we okay. have some of the brightest and smartest and most amazing people and yet they're not allowed to do anything right. uh, this is a waste of tax payers money yeah, yeah, yeah. and and we you know in in the public debate we never talk about that and that right. that's a drama that's truly a drama yeah so we yeah. we need to rethink our governance it's too much and it, I, I'm a big fan of the entire agile movement mm -hmm. agile culture um, um, and um, I, I think we need to be able to face the brutal facts more mm -hmm. and to um, you know, and to become better at 
at bridging wishful thinking with reality. Right. Yeah, but it's a perfect point now to make that transition because uh, uh, so let's say from your time there, what is it like? What are some of the things that you learned there in building up that basically that initiative there and um, into the private sector? I mean, like you, you just made it. You just talked about it, like big organizations, right? And everybody has kind of like uh, every large organization has an innovation hub or let's say this this digital unit, right? Um, there's large debate also going on, um, also whether these are very successful. I mean, there was, I remember, I can recall like a couple of weeks ago or uh, maybe a month or so, there was this uh, also big article in, in uh, a manager uh, magazine in, in, in Germany actually also kind of reflecting on that. What is your opinion on that? What is what is something that you observed or? Well, I mean, to me personally, the the. Uh, the, the most helpful thing was um, that it was able to take a different perspective. You know, for the last 20 years, I had, I had the CEO's perspective. And now, I, well, I was the CEO of my unit and my area of responsibility, but I had, I had, I had uh, in an organization like the military, you have many, many bosses and, and many other uh, people uh, who have a saying in what you do. And so um, it was very interesting to, to get a change of perspective and to know what it's like to have to live with decisions that don't make sense. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was, a and, and I, y you know, you, um, um, it, it, it helped me a lot to reflect on my own uh, leadership style. The, the other point you raise is, is super relevant, the question of uh, digital innovation units. And, and uh, to me, it, it reminds, it reminds the topic about corporate venture capital. It's it's one of these things where everybody knows it makes sense. Um, it, uh, it there's so much to be um, that you can a large organization can both in the private and public sector can win from it, and yet and and it's also it's it's very clear how it needs to be done. I mean, there's enough written in literature. There's enough experience from uh, from the field and yet 80% don't do it the right way and you know we we I always sought the um, to to change experiences with other similar digital innovation units both in the public sector and military in particular from other countries I was in touch with probably 15 other similar units around the world and in the private sector I was probably in touch with 50 innovation units of the largest German corporations. And we met on a regular basis uh, to exchange experiences. And I can tell you, 99%, it's exactly the same experiences. And um, it seems to me that there's a very, very strong disconnect between the people in these units and the senior leadership in, in the large organizations. So um, th th there's a... A disconnect in the sense that um, the the perspective and the insight of what what needs to be done to to advance the culture of innovation and advance digital transformation in these large organizations is very different. So I think we need to have two topics here. One is what are the success factors for an innovation unit? I think. That is a known. That's easy. That can be described, and it's always the same topics that reemerge. And the question, I the, the other question is, how far can a digital innovation unit go? It can only go to a certain part if the core organization doesn't change. And what I'm most worried about is, or where I see very big deficiencies in the market, is is the senior management of these large corporations, both private and public, seem to be disconnected from the agile culture and seem to, and, and of course there are glorious exceptions, but by and large seem to think that it's just another, it's just another methodology and seem to reduce it to a methodology. Whereas I, I'm convinced that the agile culture is more is it's more zeitgeist it's mm. it's 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 a way of s 
it's a social interaction thing. It's a psychology thing. It's a it's a it's a it's a way the world takes today, and and I I, I think um, it is time that large organizations wrap their heads around. Um, a shift in culture, and that has very deep implications to the organizational structures, to the processes and modes of operation, the culture, and even the psychology and social interaction between the people in these organizations. There's a really, uh, there's a lot of uh, really good points raised. So, let's say taking that into, um, you said. What what should be the outcomes are really clear of an innovation lab, right? So, let's say the the person that leads an innovation unit, right, uh, is supposed to be the bridge between, let's say, the inside, the, the big the big organism, the big body, and the outside world, right? And um, if you say that um, what needs to happen is like a, a huge cultural shift, then that requires also leadership to either leadership themselves changing you know like also let's say culturally the way they think basically to change or basically leadership being replaced well i mean so so let's talk now about innovation units right, right. not not about transforming right, the right, core right, we're right, speaking right. about innovation units right. so first of all let's acknowledge that corporations have very different reasons why to create an innovation units right, right? if if the objective like in the german military is is experimenting with new processes, new culture, new way of approaching things. It's it's by and large a cultural shift you want. Right. Um, the, I, you know, the, I think the best way to get a different culture is by hiring a different culture. So by hiring, if you if you want more entrepreneurial culture, it's very easy. Hire entrepreneurs. Don't try to transform your corporate managers into entrepreneurs. They are not corporate entrepreneurs. They are right. they are corporate managers. So if you want entrepreneurial culture, hire entrepreneurs. Now in the German military, our operating assumption was always we wanted 50% from the outside of mm. the staff in mm -hmm. in the unit, 50% serial entrepreneurs and people from the digital world, and 50% people from the system. After three years, I think I think that's still the right mix for that unit. Mm -hmm. I think that's good, with one exception. I think the leadership of the innovation unit should be um, should be more people from outside. Because if you want the if you want be different, hire different people. Uh, I, I the the experience with the if if you take senior leadership from within the system. And we're talking here about people who have joined the military at the age of 18, who have studied in the military, who have always been in that system. Even if they're really great, I'm, no, I'm not talking about substandard people, I'm talking about the best people. They have been educated and socialized in a certain way of thinking for the last 20 years or so. So it's, it's and while there may be a few in there who can make the transition, um, you know, it's coming back to this point. If you want something different, hire differently. <laughs> that is su that is uh, really uh, such a uh, such a great uh, thing that you're saying right now. Because, you know, I've been thinking about that as a lot as well, and I've been observing also different, let's say, uh, innovation units of the of of large corporations, and and that is such such a true point. You know, where I've s I've seen a large, let's say, uh, one of the biggest uh, biggest organizations also in, in in Germany. You know, having and then you look like okay, the initiatives really sound great, right? And the missions of these like in initiatives, either that be a, a corporate uh, a venture unit, you know, or in general, let's say an innovation unit. But then you look at, let's say, that, that team being, let's say, 20 people or 15 people, depending on, let's say, what unit that is. And then you look at who are the people that are, let's say, you know, part of that unit and then also who's who's the person uh, that, that is leading, th leading that unit. And then you kind of look at it and you multi uh, or you, you, you add up all the number of years they have worked at that, you know, mother company of that unit. And then it's basically, you ask yourself, how is that even possible? Because then you, 
you have the same. It's exactly what you said. It's like the person leading the unit, somebody that has been with the company, you know, for ages, yeah. basically. How is well, that person? And, and let's take this point even into the core. So let's take the automotive industry. Right. So we know the inter automotive industry is facing a few challenges. You know, connected car, shared car, uh, autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, all these things. Now take all the large automotive companies, look at the C-suite management, and look at their job titles, and how many of them are working on transformation? How many of them are focused on, on connected cars, on autonomous vehicles, on all these things? At best, you will find one out of six to eight C-suite directors that is focusing on them. All the others will have very traditional responsibilities like finance, production, R&D, whatever. Now, everybody who knows a large organization knows that you can only transform a large organization top-down from the senior leadership. But if, you, if, if out of a board of eight people, only one is focused on that future, that's not enough attention on, on it. And um, mostly these people, these people are typical corporate profiles. Now take another sector, take banks. We all know that banks are going to go through a transition that is phenomenal over the next five years. They will have to reduce a significant portion of their, of their uh, workforce. If I were the owner of a bank, I would not create a board of C-suite managers with, again, six, seven, eight people exclusively from the old world. I, I w my assumption would be it's, it, the old world is known. I need one or two people to manage the old way and the old world. I need five or six people to manage the uncertain future. And I would take people uh, from a very diverse background. I would look at um, what are the other industries that have gone through a similar transition? For, and, you know, for example, the automotive industry has gone through automatic. I would take an automotive manager into a bank. I would take uh, an entrepreneur into a bank. I would take, uh, uh, you know, people from backgrounds that are relevant for the future. And, and so, th in, in a nutshell, this is about bringing diversity and different perspectives and experiences to a completely new level. I mean, we're we're still debating about the gender question. I think it's completely, it's, it, you know, when I say it's irrelevant, don't get me wrong. It's it's important that we get the gender diversity right. But let's move on. I mean, it's more complex than that. It's not only about gender diversity. It's about diversity, full stop. And um, but all these large corporations are are managed by people who bring in the experience from the last 20 years. But how do you break the ice? I mean, like, so because the thing is that that's exactly what I see uh, with, the, with the organizations because it's the positions are fixed, right? And, and, and it's such a, s such a let's these, bo these bodies are so, so big. And then, like, each position is, is predicted. Well, how do you fix it? It's very easy. It's the question of governance. Who owns these organizations? In the private sector, it's very easy. They're shareholders. If the shareholders don't see that need, they will not appoint other non-executive board members. If there are not other non-executive board members, they will not appoint other C-suite directors. If there are not other C-suite directors, they will not make sure they're in their staff there is this diversity and this orientation to the future. So it's, it's a top-down thing. It's, it's ultimately the shareholders the pension funds, the individual shareholder that need to see this and and assume their responsibility. And then the chain will start. And in the public sector, it's the same thing. The, here, the shareholder is the voter. It's the taxpayer. And um, if they don't appoint politicians that understand that, these politicians will not appoint ministers and, and, and this equivalent of the C-suite in the, in the ministries and if you don't have a change and a diversity in this, in, in this top-level management, I, it's not that you will see no change, but change is going to come at quite an effort. No? It's, it's not that these large organizations are not changing. The, f the problem is it's costing too much energy to change. So 
you know, the, I mean, the time is already running up. So let's say last, last, last thought on that. I mean, I mean, yeah, we're we're in Germany right now. Or let's say, just give. A, can you give us um, your opinion on how you see the landscape with, let's say, the corporations that the biggest corporations that we have in Europe here? Do you see? Do you see only? Do you only see, let's say, bad examples? You know, or let's say, do you also see hope somewhere? You know, like, do you see particular organizations where you see the initiatives are really, let's say, um, you know, good and, and, and change is kind of like, you know, uh, coming in a positive way? Well, you know, first of all, I would say uh, in the private sector, it's not a drama if a big company disappears. At the end of the day, it's good because that's that's our insurance for the one. Otherwise, we would have just one big company right. that would dominate everything. So. I'm also not too worried, you know, some people are very worried about the Googles and the Facebooks and mm. taking control of everything. Well, there was a time when we thought a Netscape was irreplaceable. So, so in a way, it's good that with size comes inefficiency and then somebody else is going to beat them at some point. In the public sector, it's more complicated because it is a monopoly by choice and, and quite an important one. <laughs> we don't want to lose the monopoly of the military or the police. It is important that these organizations are able to fulfill their duties in the most effective way. And so that is to me the more worrying question. And uh, I'm not quite sure what the answer is. I'm very... I'm I'm actually rather optimistic because what I see happening right now is among the young people, there's change coming up. I think the entire agile culture is kind of coming into the public sector. And in every ministry, I see young leaders kind of waking up to the and, and starting to embrace it. And so we'll, we'll see a, a there's definitely a bottom-up movement taking place, even in the public sector. The question is, will we... So in Germany, with the next election, we will probably we'll see a new government, of course. And the question is, will we then be bold enough to, to make the top-down decisions required? Will we, will we see a true diversity in the senior leadership teams of the ministries and the large agencies? Will we see um, the focus not only on digitalization, but also on agile culture, digital transformation? Will we, will we see this as a priority? And um, I don't know. I let's, let's hope the voters will see that. Let's hope the politicians will come up to that, because I think it's really important for, for our societies. I think that is a, a really good way to end this episode, Marcel. This was really, really interesting. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much. Thanks.